Welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Ricarda Faber. And I'm Aaron Best. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. In today's episode on the EU Green Deal, we talk about renewable energy and its role in the EU's ambition to become climate neutral by 2050. But before we dive in, I'd like to start with a little quiz for our listeners. So are you ready? Energy from renewables has become the cheapest form of power today, as the deployment of renewable technologies has increased over the last decade. So here's the question. Can you guess by how much costs for energy from solar photovoltaics have dropped between 2010 and 2021? Is it A, 29%, B, 39% or C, 88%? Aaron, what's your guess? Okay, well, this is an area where I know it's changed quite a bit. So I'm actually going to guess the high number, 88%. <laughs> yes, you're right. According to the International Renewables Energy Agency, the cost of new large-scale photovoltaic projects declined by 88% between 2010 and 2021. So we're looking forward to learning more about renewable energies. And today on our podcast, we're joined by two experts in renewable energy policy. Professor Johan Liljestam leads the Energy Transitions and Public Policy Group at the Research Institute for Sustainability in Potsdam. His work focuses on policies, strategies, and instruments for a transition to a climate-neutral energy system. Also joining us is Dr. Andre Anziger, a Senior Climate Policy Analyst at Climate Analytics and instructor at Freie Universität Berlin. He has worked on European energy and climate policies since 2008 with a particular focus on the transition towards a low-carbon economy. Johan and Andre, welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I'll start this off with a question for both of you. Can you tell us, why is it so important to make the transition to renewable energy? Andre, do you want to go first? Sure, I'm happy to. So there are many reasons why we should be developing renewables and climate change, air pollution are the obvious ones, but... I think there are some reasons that's been underappreciated for a long time. 2022 was a wake-up call because energy is also quite a big cost of our economy. And we realized this 2022 when we spent 694 billion euros on importing fossil fuels from other countries. That was roughly three times as much as we invested into renewables and clean technologies in 2021. It's 4.4% of our economy. And we can just think what kind of a push that would mean for the economy if we're relying on renewables, on domestic energy sources that are clean. And that's actually renewables. So the EU is actually condemned to renewables. The other low cost or low fossil fuel energy sources would be nuclear. And that's out of question for a number of reasons. That's, for example, the price, the inflexibility, the political, social issues with nuclear energy sources. So actually, it's, well, renewables. That's the main source of energy that will be dominating in the future. I, of course, entirely agree to that, Andre. It's not only that renewables are beneficial for all of these things. It is also the only way that we can achieve climate neutrality. Without renewables, it's not possible to do so. We can increase our energy efficiency and save energy here and there, and there are quite big advantages of doing so as well. But without really increasing the supply of renewables to 100% or almost 100%, 
climate neutrality is impossible. So we have to. So it's good that all of these other advantages that you mentioned are there as well, right? It strengthens the case for renewables and renewables are now here to stay. So we better get used to it. So we're going to be speaking quite a bit about the present and the future, but let's talk a little bit about history before we get into that. The development of renewable energy technologies has been taking place for decades now. So what do you see as some of the most important milestones along the way in terms of both technologies and then also market adoption? And how has the speed of that adoption changed in recent years? Johan, let's start with you. In my view, there are two big, big changes that have happened relatively recently. And they are so recent that I don't think they have really entered the mindset of many people, politicians and citizens and scientists alike. And the first one is the Paris Agreement. It's a big change. And compared to the Kyoto environment in which we were operating before, under the Kyoto Protocol, we thought we need to reduce our emissions. And we talked about 50% emission reduction by mid-century or 80% or something like that. But with the Paris Agreement, this has changed. And the Paris Agreement requires us not to reduce emissions, but to entirely eliminate emissions. We need to go to zero, or at least to net zero. And that, for the energy sector, means that we must go for renewables. There is no other option than doing so. We have a lot of flanking policies to do, but the Paris Agreement implies a massive investment into renewables. The second thing that has really changed is something that Ricardo mentioned already in the beginning, that... Whereas in the past, renewables were expensive, right? PV and wind power have today become the cheapest sources of electricity that we have. The cheapest kilowatt hour that we can get comes from one of these renewable power stations. And that changes things just very fundamentally because in the past, things like burden sharing was important. Who carries how much of the decarbonization load? Whereas today, things have sort of changed, right? We have a little bit more of a, a race to the top. Who can expand renewables the fastest? Who can track the new industries? Who can build out these renewables so fast that they have a cheaper electricity price than their neighbors, thus attracting other industries to come? And who can secure jobs? Who can keep their energy prices stable and so on? So this has really been a tipping point because of this cost switch. Before fossil fuels were cheaper than renewables, today it's the other way around, and that entirely changes the political case for renewables. And of course, then also the speed of adoption, everything changes with this. So I think these are the two big things. This tipping point in costs and the Paris Agreement are two very big events. I would take a step backward even before 2000, and I would do it not because renewables played the role, but because they were a niche product back then. And we did have some visionaries. We did have some idealists. We did have some, you know, farmers playing with something that turned out to be a wind turbine after a while. So it came not out of nowhere. And this is something that we need constantly and we will need in the future because yes, renewables are now the cheaper source of energy and the guarantee of independence, the guarantee of energy democracy as well, when you can choose your electricity generation. But we will need another bunch of innovations and compilation of different solutions as well to take us to climate emissions neutrality in the future as well. So we cannot forget those who've been well ahead of their times. And that's one point. Another point, there is a lot of talk about the 2010s being kind of like the last decade in terms of decarbonization in Europe. But is exactly what Ricarda mentioned. This radical decrease in the cost is what happened in that decade. And that was a game changer. Um, you know, the industry scaling up by China of renewable energy sources, especially solar energy, was a massive acceleration. But 
in Europe, we made the mistake of actually slowing down development of certain technologies of renewables by some countries, you know, Germany 2013, 2012, 2013, scaling down support for solar energy 2019 for wind energy, not to mention other countries, Spain, Poland for wind energy 2015. So somehow not all countries benefited from this massive decrease in the costs. And that's quite a big mistake that we paid a lot for in 2022. Not yet. I would add, Andres, they have not benefited yet, and many countries have not done so yet. But because of these cost reductions, all countries in the world can, even Poland, can access cheap renewables if it just decides that this is what it wants to do. And I, and I want to put out a bold hypothesis out there. You said the 2010s were a lost decade in many respects. I would disagree. And I think when we look back on this time, in, I don't know, in 2035, 2040, when we're old and wrinkly or wrinklier uh, than today, then I think we will say, at least for the energy sector, the late 2010s and the early 2020s, so right now, is when the transition happened. I'm willing to bet a nice bottle of wine on that. Also, also that's a win-win situation because worst case, I pay wine and then we have a nice glass of wine. But still, I think this is what we will see when we look back on this time. Well, thanks for pointing out that new wrinkle in things, uh, <laughs> Johan. I am sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true, though. <laughs> So now that we've walked us through the major developments and changes that happen around renewable energy, can you help us understand the current regulatory framework, which policies or directives has the EU put in place to actually support the uptake of renewable energies? And how has the issue been addressed in the EU Green Deal? The renewable energy policy is shaped by national and European policies, measures, support schemes. And at the national level, there are quite big differences. But at the European level, we do have the Renewable Energy Directive, which is kind of like the cornerstone of renewable energy policy. So the first Renewable Energy Directive was adopted in 2009 with Renewable Energy Goal for 2020. That was one of the 320. So 2020, 20% share of renewables, 20% improvement in efficiency, and 20% emissions reduction. And this directive been recasted in 2018 with a new goal for 2030 then. Uh, that was supposed to be 32% share of renewables by 2030 with the new emission reduction goal of at least 55% by 2030 came new goal for the share of renewables at 40% proposed by the commission in 2021. Then Russian invasion of Ukraine resulted an upgrade of this goal. Commission suggested 45%. But certain member states didn't realize that there is a war in Europe somehow. So they proposed in negotiations with the parliament sticking to this 40% goal. Parliament went for 45 or even 50 in some cases. As a result, we have a compromise of share of renewables being 42.5%. That's a binding goal. And it is complemented with an additional indicative target of 2.5%. So it's 45-ish percent share of renewables in 2030 which is double the share of renewables at the moment. I wonder if you agree, Johan. I would say it's an ambitious goal, but we can do better than that. We should at least meeting this target. Johan? I do, in fact, disagree. I think this is possibly one of the few points that we will disagree on. I think 42.5% is already a lot. And let's see, come 2028, whether we are on the path towards that. But the fact is that we are not on track at the moment to meet 425 So I don't think that Raising the ambition even further at this point is particularly useful, but rather risks creating, let's say, well, dissatisfaction and, and a loss of enthusiasm. But in the end, it doesn't matter because this target means as fast as possible. 
And that's the important message that comes out of it. And I think that we do agree on. And as fast as possible is the actual target. And I think that's what it signals. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what fast as possible means for the different member states. Obviously, the transition to renewable energy has not been uniform across the EU. And how does that picture differ across EU member states? How would you assess the progress made by EU member states? Which countries are leading the way? What are the factors behind that? What challenges are some member states facing that we need to better understand that might mean they're lagging behind the others? Um, let's start with Andre. Yes, uh, Johan mentioned Poland, and actually I mentioned Poland as well. And there are quite a lot of interesting things happening there because the development of renewables is happening at different speeds in different countries, but it's actually happening for different energy sources at different speeds as well. There was a major slowdown for wind energy development in 2015 after the new government came into power and quite a lot of barriers for the source of energy. But in 2019, there was a support scheme for residential solar PV. It was a very simple support program. So you applied for having a solar panel on the roof and you were getting a certain amount of money. That was 5,000 water, which is around 1.2 thousand euro for the installation. And uh, applying for this grant from the government well, took something like 10 minutes when I did it. And you get the money within two, three weeks on your account. That was the initial program. Now it's taking longer and slightly more complicated. The other advantage of this program was net metering. So you could feed electricity into the grid and you could take 80% of this electricity within 12 months. The simplicity of this program was so powerful that within five years, we had 1.2 million prosumers. In April this year, we had 13.5 gigawatts of solar energy in Poland, two-thirds of which are household small installations. So there are some areas in which a lot of progress is happening. Andre mentioned prosumers there. Uh, what that means for some of you who may not know is both a producer and a consumer of electricity via your photovoltaic. Uh, Johan. Yeah, I mean, I think overall the, the transition or the, the technological progress and the technological change that we've seen, how the system has changed over time, it has gone relatively well. But we see now that the challenges are changing. Um, maybe because we're really entering a different phase of the transition. So whereas in the past, we worried a lot about the costs and the, how much do our support policies cost and such questions. Now we see quite different types of problems. I think we see problems that are more almost on the narrative side of things. We see politicization of renewables in a way that we have not seen it before, whereas renewables were in the past something that was good, signaled, progress. And it, it was a, a generally accepted thing. Sometimes there was opposition, of course, against a specific wind farm, but against renewable as such, no one really protested against that. We're seeing that this is starting to change from the right part of the political spectrum, where we see that renewables, wind power in particular, is becoming a little bit of a, I don't know how to put it, but something like a left green woke thing. And because right-wing people have to reject things that are woke, they by collateral damage, they also start to reject the energy transition issues. And I think this is very dangerous. This is going to become much of a problem. And I think we're going to dive into these issues a little bit later. But we're also starting to see, uh, let's say, bottlenecks. On the one hand, of course, we see bottlenecks because some countries, Germany, Denmark, for example, have very high shares of renewables already, where you're starting to see technical bottlenecks where we simply cannot transport the electricity from the places where it's produced to the places where it's consumed because the grid wasn't designed to solve these problems. And we're seeing these things actually materialize. 
But in particular, we're also seeing bottlenecks in administration. And Andre mentioned the simplicity of this policy scheme. And I think simplicity is something that has really gotten lost <laughs> over the last decade. And we see that often things get stuck in uh, the permission process. Wind Europe, for example, reports that 47 gigawatts of onshore and offshore wind power stuck in the permission process in Europe. That's just a massive amount of wind power that is planned where financing is there, things are coming, but it's just not getting the permissions to build. And some numbers on that, we're seeing, for example, in Germany, we're seeing in 2011, it took 20 months to get a building permit for a wind farm. In 2021, that had grown to almost 40 months. So it has doubled over this time. And if the administrative capacity doesn't increase, then of course you get a kind of a paper jam in your town hall and things just get stuck. So there are new types of problems, new types of challenges that arise now that we're not just introduced new technologies, but we're really going into mass deployment and really changing the way our electricity system works. And that changes a lot of things. But there were some improvements on this front. The statements in the Renewables Directive that renewables and grids are in the overriding public interests will help wind energy in some cases. The obligation to establish renewable acceleration areas where renewables will not have to deal with quite a lot of additional permitting processes should help as well. But it will take time. And, you know, that's a time that we don't really have. So would I agree, but I do hope that 2021 could have been the moment where the most kind of resigned as an investor in especially wind energy. But I think 2022 and the energy crisis following the Russian invasion of Ukraine helped our leaders, some of them at least, to understand that renewables, that's the way forward and that making us independent from energy imports. That's true. But I have to comment on this one because it's, it's very important. Because, I mean, in the past, we discussed about the policy schemes for paying for wind power, paying for solar power. This was important in the past. This is now not the key, but the permission stuff is indeed key. And there are new rules coming out of the Repower Europe package saying that every member state has to assign go-to areas where wind power or where solar power has an overriding interest and simplified permission processes and the authorities have up to 12 months time to decide either accept or reject a project. And that is all good. I think that's a very good idea. The problem is, are we able to do it or not? Because you can set this limit of 12 months as much as you want. If you don't have the staff in the town hall to handle the application, it will not help because they're not dragging their feet. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's too complicated and there are too few people. So that then means that we need to shift people from other departments in the town hall or whoever is the authority permitting these things so that we may meet the 12 months for wind power, but we will not meet whatever time requirements we will have for something else, for new tram lines or daycare centers or streets or, or whatever permissions are handled by the same authority. So possibly we're just shifting things. So I think it's a good policy. But I think the jury is still out on whether it will actually work or not. And we'll see. I think we don't know because we haven't tried it yet. And we shall see in a couple of years. I would still say it's a matter of political will. I mean, the wind turbines got bigger, but not necessarily much more complicated. And still the permission process quadrupled over the last decade or so. That's right. And we installed, what was it, five, six, seven gigawatts per year in Germany a decade ago. Now, 2021, we had how much? One, two. So I think we've been blocking ourselves. This is changing at the moment, at the EU level, at least. What is missing is still the political will. I'd like to stay with this topic of main challenges and overcoming them, specifically how they get in the way of the scaling up needed. So we've mentioned complexity, you've mentioned delay and the need for you know more administrative capacity. 
political will. Are there any other main challenges that are really in the way? So it'd be that technical, political, administrative. So I would go back to something that actually Johan mentioned, the lacking grid flexibility or lacking connections. This seems to be quite a big challenge. So at the beginning of July, on Sunday, we had a windy and sunny weather and we had prices in the Netherlands of minus 500 euro per megawatt hour. If you could consume electricity or store electricity, take it from the grid, you were paid 500 euro per megawatt hour. So this is, well, opportunity, but also a challenge, obviously, especially since a year from now, we will have additional 12, 13 gigawatts of solar energy in Germany only. This is something we have to find a solution for in terms of flexibility, grid development, yeah, that's kind of like a no-brainer, but it does take some time as well to build the grid. The plants are there and there were many acceleration programs, but somehow the grid development accelerates. So we have to find a way to encourage consumers to consume electricity when it's cheap. You know, if you were back back then, you were actually paid to charge your car if you had the tariff that would take account for this negative price. So we have to just improve on that one and make our electricity grid just much more flexible. I agree. I think the greatest, like the, it's the ugly duckling of the energy transition, right? We, we, well, I don't know if we needed the ugly duckling, but we're going to need the grid and no one really wants to touch it. It's a hot potato that many people object very strongly to. I mean, these are issues that we have been raising I mean, for 15 years. For my entire career, one of the first things I worked with was with power lines. And we said, we need these power lines. We need HVDC, high voltage direct power lines crossing long distances, crossing borders, possibly crossing entire countries. We need more interconnectors between countries and nothing has happened. We're not really building anything. And I think if we have an overriding interest for wind power, we have an overriding interest for the production of energy, why not have an overriding interest for transmission lines in particular as well? I think that is something that we're going to need because without the grid, all of this, it's not going to work particularly well. But I also think we need to make sure that we manage the entire energy transition, right? So PV and wind power are now cheap. PV and wind power are flying by themselves. They are standing on their own legs. They are going to be fine. But we also need other technologies. We need these flexibility options to balance out the, the power system when there is no wind and or there is no sun. And that means then we don't need to only keep on deploying these two technologies. We need further technologies and we need dispatchable ones and we need storage. But I think the dispatchable technologies, they're a little bit uncool nowadays. Right? So we talk about PV, that's a cool technology. We talk about battery storage, that's cool, right? But other technologies, pretty unsexy ones, geothermal or biomass power or concentrating solar power, all of these sources that can provide on-demand electricity, they have sort of fallen off the political agenda. And that is a big mistake because we are going to need these backup technologies. We're not only going to need intermittency, we're not only going to need storage, we're going to need these as well. They are more expensive on a per kilowatt hour basis, but they fill a completely different purpose in the power system. So they are also more valuable than the cheap PV and wind technology. So I think the dispatchability and the dispatchable technologies is something that will need to come now in the second phase of the transition. I'm not yet seeing that it is happening, but I do believe that it will have to happen. Yeah. So you mentioned dispatchable and not all of our listeners may be familiar with that term. So in a nutshell, 
Exactly. Dispatchable means it's a power source that I can turn on and off depending on how much we need it. So a gas power station, I can turn it on and off more or less to adapt to the demand. Whereas a PV station, a PV array on my roof, it produces electricity when the sun is shining, regardless of whether we need that electricity or not. Okay, so these things function as complements to one another to balance the grid. Exactly. We've already talked a little bit about renewable technologies and what do you think are actually the most promising ones looking ahead, apart from the ones you've just mentioned, or are there actually any early stage technologies that you're particularly interested in? And how can we actually ensure that they break into the market and stay in the market and mainstream? What policy instruments do we need to support this? So maybe I would start with a statement that I'm not expecting any breakthrough or like the breakthroughs happen, right? The solar panels are getting more and more efficient. Wind energy is more efficient as well, but also going offshore. And then we have floating wind and solar, wind floating solar as well. But when I go to my cellar and when I look at my electricity meter, it's a Ferrari meter that I know from my childhood. And that's been quite some time ago. Uh, so... You know, we're talking about artificial intelligence, about chat GPT stealing our jobs, and we're using technology from the 1970s, 1980s, which doesn't allow me to, you know, contribute to the grid and maybe save some money by doing my washing at 12 or 1 p.m. when we have another sunny and windy day. Things have been changing recently in some countries. In Germany, we do have the necessary legislation adopted recently, but There are so many different ways in which we can deploy existing technologies, so many smarter ways in which we can deploy them that uh, we're not taking advantage of at the moment. But okay, I will mention a technology that I found cool. It's not, you know, so original, but um, there is a floating solar in the Netherlands. And the originality of this one is that it's round. So it is just following the sun. It can easily generate 40% more electricity from the same space, I just find this quite cool idea that you have floating solar, which is just turning around and following the sun. I, I, I agree, I think. And, and I mean, we laugh because we say, oh, this is cool, so we should have it. But I think the coolness of technologies is actually important for their breakthrough. I think if PV hadn't been cool, if it hadn't been Einstein and all of these, like it hadn't been just cool and fascinating, we would never have supported it in 1990. Because it was just madly expensive. It made absolutely no sense, but it was cool. So we did it anyway. So I think the coolness is something. And I would like to comment on your idea on this flexibility of demand. I, of course, agree. And we need to make demand more flexible. I think one of the things to look out for is concentrating solar power. It remains a really big option, in particular for Southern Europe, for any sunny country and for any desert country. Of course, we don't have deserts in Europe or not yet, at least. <laughs> Maybe in 20 years, we shall see. But this technology works with solar energy, but with the heat of the sun. And it collects the heat of the sun using big mirrors and collects it into a tank of molten salt or of some other material that can store this energy. And you can use it immediately to generate electricity if you want, or you can store the heat and use it with very small losses at night or next week or whenever you think that you're going to need this electricity, whenever there is value in producing electricity from this storage. And this is a technology that was, let's say it was hot about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. The Germans will know it under the Desert Tech vision where we thought we're going to place massive amounts of these in the desert of North Africa and import that electricity to Germany. Of course, the Germans unfortunately forgot to ask the North Africans and also the Spanish if they want to transmit this electricity to Germany. So that vision died, but the technology is still around and the technology is 
evolving. In particular, the Chinese are now building it, but they're not building it as this bulk generation technology as we thought it would be 15 years ago. They're building it to include it into, they call it multi-energy complexes, where they have a big wind farm or a big PV array. And when I say big in China, starts with one thousand megawatts, right? This is a size that doesn't exist in Europe, but that's when they start to think about stuff. And they now have laws in place saying you can build these things. And when you build these big multi-energy complexes, you must have storage. And CSP is then built to store this electricity, excess PV electricity in the form of heat. So they build these CSP stations as we've seen them in the past, but with very small solar fields and with very large storages in order to use the excess electricity and feed it back into the grid at night or next week or whenever we can anticipate that there's going to be a a lull in the wind or a sandstorm or or these things. And this is going to be key, finding the ways to get balanced PV in particular, to get rid of the excess supply and to fill the gaps, especially after sundown when the demand is still high, it's going to be central and CSP can fill exactly this gap. And in order to get that, We need to change our policy settings a little bit. At the moment, we're only rewarding kilowatt hours, so the amount of energy that we feed into the grid. We need to also reward the time when we feed this energy into the grid. Maybe just a point on who should be doing that, because you mentioned China as an operator of this plant, you have to also make sure that you take care of storage, which you know may be fine in terms of large, large scale plants. But in Germany, for quite some time, we had the idea that, well, you generate solar power, you have to take care of it in your household. Maybe that's not the best way to do it. So I mentioned the support mechanism in Poland for solar energy so that you get 80% of this electricity later in the winter, right? So you know, from the system perspective, one could say, well you generating plenty of solar and then in the winter you're getting plenty of coal electricity, right? So it doesn't make sense from emissions point of view. It does. You know, households don't really have wind turbines usually in a backyard, but most of them don't at least. But, uh, you know, the system does have them, right? So um, solving this issue of storing electricity at the country level or the system level would simply be much more efficient, right? So yes, we do need these policies that would reward also the flexibility and ability to generate electricity when there's not much of it in the grid and consume electricity when there is way, way too much of that. I do think that you know the price difference between 8, 9 a.m. and noon, for example, could already be a trigger when the price goes down from plus 150 euros to minus 200 euros within a few hours. That's already triggering certain behaviors in terms of the bigger players. So I'd like to turn to some of the current political debates that are going on, make sure we characterize those for our listeners. What do you see as the current political debate? And is that the right conversation that's happening? What do you think could be brought in at this window of time to further the cause of renewable energy adoption? Uh, Johan? I think, at least on the European level, we're doing pretty well, I think. As mentioned, I think there are some gaps still, and in particular, the flexibility issue is still just unsolved. So not only have we not yet implemented the various flexibility options that we're going to need, we also don't have any policies to fill them. And that's a big gap. No country has very particularly detailed or any targets at all for how to solve this flexibility issue, whereas many or most countries have pretty detailed countries of how much PV do we want, how much wind power do we want, and so on. But they're not really addressing this gap, the flexibility gap, possibly because the technological solutions to this were not present so far. So it's hard to define a political strategy. If you don't know exactly what you're going to do, then you might as well not have a target for it. But now these options are coming. 
batteries are becoming an option. Thermal storage is already an option, but it's also becoming visibly an option. And these dispatchable sources are starting to evolve, right? We have biogas, we have biomass power stations already in Europe, but we're running them in the wrong way. We are not running them to fill the gaps of PV and wind. We're running them to generate kilowatt hours because that's how we remunerate them. And we need to change that and so on. So there are some things to think about not only deployment of new stuff, but how do we operate it and really think from a systemic view, how are we going to create a functioning system and not only how are we going to get as much PV as we can. And I think that is what now is meant with as fast as possible. How do we transform the entire system as fast as possible? And not only how do we get uh, a thousand gigawatts of PV as fast as we can. Maybe just in terms of the solutions, because I think we had the solutions for a long, long time. We just didn't deploy them because we had the cheaper alternative. So in California, for example, there is a policy, or the policy was introduced already um, 2011, 2012, where the operators of the utility companies had to develop storage, which was a certain percentage of the capacity. There was obligation that they actually overachieved this obligation by 2022. In Europe, we didn't have it because, well, if there is no wind, if there's no sun, you just burn cheap Russian gas. That was the approach until 2021, right? So it was not really forward-looking approach and one which actually slowed down the deployment of storage and other ways to manage the grid. And we are catching up now. Or we have to catch up because the Russian gas is luckily gone, not be there again. And the LNG is cheaper than it was a year ago, but it will never be as cheap as Russian gas. So yes, we have to think about storage. And yes, we have to think about storage because obviously we have to get rid of all fossil fuels from our energy sector. But going back to your question about uh, the current discussions and controversies by the policymakers, what, what's been the major topic discussed currently? I would say after realization how dependent we are on fossil fuels, there came the realization how dependent we are on clean technologies as well. Solar energy, wind energy, batteries, electric vehicles developed in China. And then there's this combined with the IRA adopted in the US made has all contributed to some European policymakers waking up and saying, hey, we have to get back clean industry back to Europe as well. We have to become much more independent also in the clean technologies. For heat pumps, for example, Europe is the leading one. Europe is the one where the most investment is happening in new capacities, not in terms of deployment. Again, cheap gas was the main issue back before 2022, but it is a leading one in terms of developing new, new manufacturing capacities for heat pumps, for example. So some things are happening in this regard to make up for this dependency, not only in terms of fossil fuels, but also in terms of manufacturing of clean technologies. Heat pumps is a good keyword here, because I mentioned earlier something about the politicization of renewables and the politicization of climate policy in general. Germany has just now gone through a period of discussing heat pumps, and that as a political scientist, I can use, I think, the, the correct term for this is that this debate has been completely bonkers. It's been just completely stupid discussion about heat pumps and the, how horrible heat pumps are and the wokeness of things and the government being, I don't know, all the way to socialist movements trying to force us to use heat pumps and so on. I said, come on, I mean, this is, this is on the one hand, it's physics and heat pumps are just super good. And on the other hand, it's just economics. They are also, for most applications, the best option that we have. But for some reason, people attach values to this technology 
that then make it politically un unfeasible to, to run it. And I think this is really a debate that is happening. This has not yet, as far as I can tell, happened at the European level, but it happens on the national levels um, in many countries. And it's often connected to wind power. This has been for several years now the case. And apparently heat pumps are now the second victim of this politicization. And here are things that we really need to take care of and make sure that we don't let's say, shoot down these good things by attaching too many moral overtones to them. By just saying, look, heat pumps are great, so we're going to support heat pumps. And if you don't want a heat pump, then don't take the support and then don't build a heat pump, but do something else. But really take it easy and tone things down, not go with the moral arguments too often, because they are on the one hand, of course, catering to a particular audience, but they're also scaring a lot of people off when they're causing an anti-reaction. I think that's one part of the political debate that we really need to keep an eye on so that the transition that is actually going really well can continue to go well. Just, just on the heat pump, I could not comment on this one. I do agree very much that heat pumps is the most efficient way to heat your home. And I do have a firsthand experience of using heat pump in a home built 100 years ago. And, you know, we didn't really have to kind of completely demolish it and build it from scratch as would have been kind of like suggestion by some politicians in Germany. It's working perfectly well, uh, although, uh, you know, I was quite scared when we did install it. So, uh, you know, and I'm just wondering why is Poland ahead of Germany in terms of installation of heat pumps and doing quite well? So somehow there are many things politicized in Poland, but somehow, luckily, the heat pumps haven't been. And that's so far, but you know, if you have one, it's you just don't believe all these arguments that, you know, you will freeze to death in the winter and something like that. No, it's working perfectly. And my family members moved from cold to heat pumps. And, you know, it's such a huge improvement in the quality of life in the energy bills as well. And it's just cool. And it's fascinating technology. In light of all this and some of the bottlenecks that you mentioned earlier, what are the most important current recommendations you have for policymakers? investors or relevant stakeholders? Okay, so um, going back to heat pumps, actually, I would say cheaper electricity is essential so that it's even more convincing to install one. For a long time, we've been charging electricity way more than other fossil fuels. Electricity is the cleanest. It's not clean yet, but it's the cleanest fuel at the moment. So we just need to scale up its utilization especially by the you know, future owners of heat pumps and all of those who you know, will drive electrically in the future. And the more we spread electricity, the more sectors we electrify, the easier it will be to deal with these mountains and valleys of the electricity price driven by reliance on renewables and on wind and solar. Because you know, if you electrify transport and you encourage you know, some percentage of drivers to charge the cars when electricity is cheap, or in a negative region, then the easier it will be to stabilize the grid. And, you know, this can also be happening with heat pumps. So yes, there's not much sun in Germany in December and January, but there's quite some sun still in, you know, October, part of November, part of March and April, when you still use heating, right? And this can be powered by your solar panels. So overall, we should decrease the cost of electricity coming from the grid. And this will also allow people to use quite some electricity from their own roof, triggering decarbonization by installing solar panels, for example. So just, just a point on this one, I think these three things come together. If you have a heat pump, you will get the solar panels, and then one day you will get the electric car, or just choose and pick the sequence. These three things come together if you are a homeowner 
the flat owner, it's a bit different in terms of solar panels on the roof, for example. Uh, so that's the first point, uh, first recommendation. And the other one would be keep eyes open for potential bottlenecks in the supply of materials and products needed for the transformation. That would have been the top of all news reports for quite some time, the cheap crisis, the small pieces of equipment that actually made many car manufacturers uh, to slow down production and to, you know, to lay off quite some people. You know, we didn't think that the small elements that contribute a small percentage of the price of the car actually just was a major barrier to build new cars. In this case, in the case of transformation, in the case of heat pumps, solar panels, wind turbines, electrolyzers, there are so many pieces the manufacturing of which will have to scale up massively, so many resources that we will need. And obviously you will not be the build a wind turbine if any of these pieces is missing. I would advise policymakers, make sure that we will have enough of all the small bits and pieces to facilitate the massive acceleration, the compensation that's needed to achieve the EU renewable energy goals. Mm. What about you, Johan? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I have <laughs> a million <to> things. <laughs> a million. How long time do you have? But I think there are two big things to really think about, right? I mean, in the past, we've thought a lot about how to get deployment. We've thought about the policy instrumentation for that, how to pay for renewables, feed-in tariffs versus quotas, how to design our auctions and so on, how to keep costs down of this initial deployment. That's all sort of done, at least for several of the technologies. And in the future, the fight is in other places. And how do we get people to build this stuff? How do we get people to do things that are in principle profitable for them, to build a solar array on the roof, for example? How do we get our administrations up to the task? This I cannot emphasize how important this is, to really get the bureaucracy in shape, to simplify things, but also make sure that we can permit things while also actually testing things, also really seeing, is this wind farm a threat to someone or to some animal species or whatever is the problem? Is this an appropriate place to build a wind farm? Because not every wind farm is in the right place. So we need to have these tests. We need to have all the permissions, but we need to make sure that it happens a lot faster than it does at the moment. And above all, the big challenge now is how to fill the gaps that PV and solar are creating in the power system. So think about the infrastructure. That is going to be super important and not only for the electricity sector, it's going to be obviously important for the transport sector with car chargers and so on. We are starting to think now about how to deal with infrastructure for hydrogen. I think a lot of that is a hype, but we are going to need hydrogen. And the question is, where are we going to put that? And how are we going to do that? We don't know. There is no infrastructure for hydrogen in the place at the moment, and we need it before we can really start to rely on it. So that's the one thing that the challenge and the focus of policy has changed over time. And the second point, I think, is going to be Absolutely critical. And here's the point where I, I'm really worried because I think we're going to get the policies. We're going to get that right, more or less, if we just want to. But we need to stop picking shadow fights about whether renewables are good or not and whether renewables is something for left people and for woke people and so on. We need to urgently stop discussing nuclear power because it is very tiresome for us in the field. So if nothing else, think about our mental health. We don't need to listen to the new Polish plans of a gazillion gigawatts of, of new nuclear, you're not going to build it. So just stop talking about it. Talk about something useful instead. Right? Embrace the new reality and go with this new reality. And the reality for the last eight years or so has become renewables. Renewables are standing on their own leg. They are the best and the cheapest option and the fastest option we have for anything in the electricity sector, even regardless of if you think we need to stop climate change or not. 
which is another fight that we should not <laughs> start having, of course. But renewables are just good. I mean, in a sense, that let's say the renewable ship has left the harbor and we're on this ship. And we better just acknowledge that we are moving in this direction and that it is a good thing. It's not a political thing. Any clever economic solution is to go with renewables. So let's just do that and stop picking fights at the side. First of all, yes, in the nuclear power plants in Poland, I don't think they will be built and I don't think they should be built. So for that agreement on this one. But what I would also advise policymakers is to be brave because they will make mistakes. And that's an essential element of each transition. We do make mistakes. They should try anyway. Tesla was funded by the Department of Energy loan program and turned out to be a success story. But the same office funded a number of other projects which failed. So that Obama almost lost elections because of Solyndra. So be brave, be ready to, well, fail in some cases, because only then you will to succeed. And then, you know, if you're not in power, well, just don't complain too much because otherwise nothing will go forward. So it's much more the plea to those who are not in power and to not misuse the bravery of the politicians to make mistakes. Well, Johan and Andre, thank you for your own bravery in joining us today for uh, the Green Deal, Big Deal discussion. Enjoyed it very much, uh, our discussion of the past, present and future of renewable energies in the EU. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So, Ricardo, that was our discussion with Andre and Johan about renewable energies in the EU. What were some of the things that you found most interesting? Oh, difficult to choose from it was a very interesting chat. But I think one of the main takeaways for me actually is that we're now entering a second phase or a new phase of the transition and that policymakers actually have to adapt policies accordingly so that now policies actually need to be designed so that they create incentives, for example, households yet yeah, to trigger energy consumption behaviors. That really came across to me as well. That the nature of the challenge has changed dramatically. And that quiz you started at the beginning with the price, I think, was you know a key aspect of that, that now renewables are the cheapest. So much of policy was about getting these renewables in place despite them not being the cheapest. And that's totally different now. And it's more about how do we get the supporting infrastructure in place to enable what would be a market rate adoption even of these technologies. The other thing that struck me too was how the ambition level has been increasing. So we have the Renewable Energy Directive, the first version set this 2020-20 goal that Andre mentioned and with the 20% renewals by 2020, the new political compromise or ambition level 42.5% just 10 years later. So more than doubling in policy ambition just a 10 year later period. What for me is the second point is the speed aspect. And both of the speakers talked about the need for speed now and the reducing complexity, the building out the administrative capacity, uh, preventing bottlenecks that slow things down. Yeah, actually, you just mentioned the prices and it's a super important aspect that this drastic decrease in prices has actually enabled less fortunate countries or households to actively participate in the clean energy transition, which makes it a just transition, which is one of the goals of the EU Green Deal. Right, right. And also, yeah, you mentioned some of the bottlenecks. These are often things that we don't think about because immediately 
when you mention renewable energies, you just think of actually the energy supply, energy production and the technologies. But we also need to address these administrative bottlenecks and the whole permitting issue and to actually have these big wind farms and big wind technologies to actually have them in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they mentioned, you know, some of these sort of hard challenges, preventing and addressing bottlenecks, um, building out the grid. I thought what was also interesting was discussing some of the soft challenges in the sense of sort of cultural and social things like changing norms and how difficult that is to do. And as well as avoiding the sort of unnecessary identity politics aspect that seems to be creeping into some of these debates about technologies that are really, you know, in the end, going to be cheaper to deploy than the fossil fuel-based ones that they're replacing. Yeah, actually, maybe here I can cite uh, Johan, as he said, it's just bonkers. Let's just stop discussing whether renewables are good or bad. I mean, they are here, we have them, so let's just use them. Yeah, I think one debate we will see going forward is the grid aspect. And I find Mm -hmm. that interesting from an environmental policy standpoint that there are some trade-offs even within environmental values that, you know, we need to balance well, make sure that we build out the grid in a way that is not harmful to some other environmental goals that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's also, I mean, the grid is also important. Um, I think it was Andre, he mentioned presumerism and smart meters and, you know, even if we have the smart meters involved without a proper functioning grid and a fit for purpose grid that actually can deal with the volatility of renewables, mm. then, you know, we'd, because I mean, such a big opportunity as well to empower energy users on the local level. So yeah, we definitely need strong infrastructures. Mm. Well, that was a very fun conversation, I thought, as well. That's my other takeaway, just as a back and forth. I thought very lively and very interesting to have these two experts interacting in this way. Yes, it was great. Well, thank you for tuning into our podcast today, which was actually the 11th episode so far. So, yay! We hope today's episode helped to get a better understanding of the ambitions and challenges around the clean energy transition. And of course, we also welcome you to join our webinar series. You can learn more about it and sign up for upcoming webinars on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. To be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes, you can follow our Instagram channel at greendealbigdeal. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection. The Ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Chiara Mazzetti, Eva Ivaschuk, Ricardo Faber and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Abley, graphic and web design by Jennifer Rahn. Special thanks to Anna Henser-Henschel, Liliana Sala, Philip Katz, Nora Kugel, Camilla Bausch and Michael Lawrence.